My name is Patricia Burgess. I am a bankruptcy and restructuring partner with Frost Brown Todd and the Special Projects Lead for the Emerging Industries and Technology Committee of AVI. In our first two crypto episodes, we spent time talking about what crypto is and how the law is catching up. Today, we ship gears and discuss fiduciary duties, which are foundational for bankruptcies. If you have not listened to the first two episodes of this series, we recommend that you do so for context and background. I am pleased to introduce my partners, John Wagster and Jordan Blast. Also joining us today is my partner, Jared Tolley. Jared is a litigator and bankruptcy practitioner in FBT's Charleston, West Virginia office. Jared serves as the vice chair of the firm's business and commercial litigation practice group, and he serves as the leader of the firm's financial institution subteam, which focuses on all issues related to banking and financial institutions. In addition to Jared's commercial litigation and bankruptcy practice, Jared has been working on insolvency cases involving cryptocurrency and advising clients navigating exchange and solvency. Additionally, Jared has been addressing and litigating smart contract disputes involving token ownership and application of smart contract protocol. Thank you, gentlemen, and welcome. I'd like to also introduce Jordan Blask. Jordan serves as an outside general counsel to middle market, private, or closely held businesses across many industries with a focus on restructuring, bankruptcy, and distressed transaction. He is also the partner in charge of the Pittsburgh office of Frost Brown Todd. Jordan has spent considerable time representing clients who are impacted by the recent crypto winter and the regulatory uncertainty surrounding the crypto and blockchain industries. He has done various presentations on bankruptcy-specific issues involving cryptocurrency. Jordan, you are a practicing bankruptcy lawyer and knowledgeable about crypto assets. In fact, I know that you and Jared have presented a seminar or two on these issues. So tell me, what is on your mind as a practitioner? Uh, so, John, I've been hearing a lot uh, about what you guys have been talking about, and um, we'll take for take for purposes of this discussion that bankruptcy courts have identified crypto as an asset of the estate, but it's a unique type of asset because it's as everybody has heard, an asset that has wild volatility associated with it. And value at any given point in time in a bankruptcy is really important for the overall outcome of how creditors might get paid, uh, equity might be retained, so on and so forth. How do we approach valuation issues in the bankruptcy context, knowing how volatile the, the industry is uh, and the asset classes? That's a great question, um, Jordan. I think, first, as you pointed out in other conversations, uh, I don't believe bankruptcy courts have really determined what sort of fiduciary duty bankruptcy practitioners and trustees have with respect to digital assets. So that's one question. But putting that aside, without regard to what their duty is, the value of cryptocurrency often fluctuates dramatically depending on the type of cryptocurrency it is and, and its use. So if I'm a bankruptcy trustee or a practitioner and I get access to a digital asset, a token, um, is it my job to try and maximize the value of that asset? That is, hang on to it. Well, if it's an interest-bearing token, hang on to it and allow it to continue to earn interest. Or is it my job just to simply liquidate it and turn it into fiat currency as quickly as I can? 
if I have custody of that asset, that asset, and by custody, I mean, I've got the 12 word seed phrase or the private key of the holder. So I can literally manipulate it. There are many services out there, uh, like the ones that our law firm uses that I can send the cryptocurrency to that service and they will automatically exchange it back to us dollars for me. So our law firm, for example, we accept cryptocurrency as payment, but we use a third party provider. So we send out a crypto invoice that denominates the amount of that invoice in cryptocurrency to our client. And when the client pays the invoice, the payment goes into the wallet of a third party. Third party receives that cryptocurrency, immediately translates it into US dollars and sends it to our bank account. And a similar service could be used by a bankruptcy practitioner or a, or a trustee if they want to immediately liquidate the cryptocurrency that they have. Uh, now, is that the best idea for them? Somebody who's relatively familiar with cryptocurrency, I would say probably not, because that means they're getting the current value of that asset at that time and nothing more. Uh, so many, you know, most people are holding cryptocurrency, they're holding it for a reason, either because they think it's going to become more valuable or it is becoming more valuable at that time, or it has some use that's important to them. Uh, and I don't think it's reasonable to ask a bankruptcy practitioner to, to be able to get you know, to get the head of the holder of the crypto. That practitioner is just asking, what's best for the estate here? What's best for my client? Um, and answer to that question is going to vary. Well, how do you think the, uh, the, the trustee can determine what's best uh, in terms of handling the asset? That's really the problem, Jared. The, the, the trustee is going to have to be really knowledgeable about crypto, and I just don't think there are very many. So I think there is, there is a real opportunity out there for third-party analysis to come in and say, I will analyze your portfolio, these X number of tokens you have, and help you determine their value based on the smart contracts that control them and based on the protocols that they're in or their lending position and help you determine, A, how much they're worth right now, and B, whether it's a better good idea to sell them or hang on to them. Well, John, one of the things that bankruptcy practitioners are probably very familiar with is that when you file a bankruptcy, obviously we know the estate is created, but the, the value of the asset in that estate as of the petition date are are really what will dictate the the roadmap, right, for, for future bankruptcy strategy. And so a lot of what we talk about is not maximizing value in bankruptcy parlance, it's preservation of value of the asset. I see a lot of tension in what you're saying, though, in the sense that if a, a debtor has entered into a smart contract that hasn't been triggered yet, or they've, uh, they've invested in a coin offering that hasn't fully materialized, you know, dumping value in the early stages of a bankruptcy just to create minimal fiat currency in order to distribute to creditors versus holding for triggering events, holding for the maturity of the coin offering, and eventually liquidating for purposes of distribution to creditor would probably be more favorable. But, you know, everything I'm hearing you say is, is you got to know a lot about those intricacies in order to dutifully discharge your responsibility to that bankruptcy estate. And so what are some tips that you could think of for a practitioner just to be getting to the point where they're comfortable understanding 
if not maximizing preservation of that value. So I think those comments are spot on, Jordan, and I can give you a couple really good examples. You know, it's very common when a new cryptocurrency is created for there to be uh, the different mo methods of distributing that cryptocurrency. One is called an ICO or initial coin offering, in which those coins are offered out. And typically, when it first offers, they're, they're relatively inexpensive. So I can go, I might buy a million tokens for $10. Or you know, ten million tokens for a thousand dollars, or whatever it is, they're inexpensive. Some protocols before they launch will actually have a pre-sale, and the pre-sale is for specific investors that are either qualified or people who have attested they're going to use the token on a particular blockchain, or they're strategic partners that they you know that the founders really want involved in the project. And those early pre-sale tokens are also worth a lot of money if the protocol is ever built. So. There's pre-sale tokens, there's ICO tokens that are sold sometimes even before a protocol is active, before it's been built. Sometimes they're sold right at the same time it's launched, the protocol is launched. So there's a simultaneous token launch and a protocol launch. But if early token holders are paying pennies or less on the dollar for tokens, and then three or four years later, that protocol is built out, then those tokens can be worth tens or hundreds or even thousands of dollars each. That's what's fed the speculation market uh, for ICOs and for tokens in general. So if you're a bankruptcy trustee or a practitioner and you control of tokens from an initial coin offering or a token pre-sale, then those tokens are by definition going to be worth fractions of a penny. But if you hang on, you know, there might be a protocol that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they're close to launch or six months from launch and those tokens are still worth pennies but in six months those tokens are likely to be worth a lot more uh, and if they're a unicorn company they can be atmospherically more liquid you know just by way of example the price of ethereum at the beginning of 2017 was was eight dollars and by the end of 2017 it had gone up 78x 78 times 7,800 percent if my math is correct and that's just the value of an individual token that's that's not a you know a newly launched protocol so astronomical values like that are possible uh, and it would be a real shame for a bankruptcy trustee to require the liquidation of some ICO tokens particularly if they're in bulk uh, and get a few thousand dollars for them when they could be worth millions if they if that trustee knew how to hang on so how does the trustee know again you have to have an expert uh, but if i'm a trustee and i don't know anything about tokens if i see somebody has a lot of tokens like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of tokens i'm gonna be very careful about how to dispense with them because clearly that person invested early uh and you know there's likely a payday at the end or at least a possibility of a payday at the end. now i'll say something that contradicts that because there are also out there many what we call meme tokens, like Dogecoin or Shiba Inu, or you know, the meme tokens are really just worthless. They're created, you know, for in a speculative atmosphere to you know to the moon is the catchphrase in video. It's going to go up the cheap. The whole point of those tokens is to buy low and sell high. Really, what they are is it's a way for people to learn how to trade. I sell a trade. So they'll start a meme company. It costs a couple hundred bucks to start it. And if it takes off, great. You might make money. If it doesn't, no big deal. You haven't lost anything. People use them to trade. So I might own 
an individual might own millions of different meme coins and they might be truly worthless. But a, a trustee or practitioner is not going to know that unless they check. So a, there are many different types of tokens. They all have different utilities and values as we've discussed. But a very common type of token is called a stable coin. Stable coin is unique for, for a number of reasons. Stable coins are tied to the value of a real world asset. That could be a stock or it could be a piece of land. It could be anything. But most commonly, they're tied to types of currency, like the US dollar, or the yen, or the euro. Uh, and by far, the most stable coins are denominated as US dollars. There are different kinds of stable coins. Uh, but because stable coins are denominated as a specific amount, in a bankruptcy context, if you have a bankruptcy estate that has stable coins in it, those coins are not going to go up and down at value because they are, by definition, stable. So there's no reason not to go ahead and liquidate them if that's your goal and, and put them to use. Um, there are different kinds of stable coins. There are centralized stable coins, which are the most common. And the most common are, are Tether, USDT, or USDC. Uh, and those are dollar denominated. And those stable coin providers pledge to put a dollar in a bank or in escrow for every stable coin that's issued. So in order to redeem that stable coin, you simply go back to the issuer and redeem your stable coin for one US dollar. There are algorithmic stable coins, which do not have assets uh, set aside for them as collateral. Uh, they, they rely on complex math to, uh, to derive their stability. Uh, not surprisingly, they're not as stable as those that hold collateral behind them. And, and there are many enthusiasts who will disagree with me there, but so far history will bear me out. Algorithmic stable coins have not performed as well as, as traditional stable coins. So John, what, you know, one of the things that I think is really important for people who might be listening to this to understand is that um, in, in an ordinary bankruptcy context, um, a lot of times subject to court approval, um, the estate can transfer its interest and assets to third parties. It could be through a 363 sale. It could just basically be, be, be based upon contract rights or otherwise. But that I don't think it's that simple when you're dealing with cryptocurrency. So can you give us a little bit of guidance or insight into the restrictions on transferability and maybe the interplay with our contracts and the actual ability for a crypto asset to leave a bankruptcy estate in order to create that value that creditors might want? Sure, it's hard, but it's a great question. Uh, most of the biggest cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are freely transferable. In fact, most cryptocurrencies are. Uh, but many tokens, particularly when they are part of an early token issuance, uh, have restrictions on transfer. So it's very common, for example, if uh, if I create a new cryptocurrency protocol, the founders or the creators of that protocol will receive a certain percentage of the tokens, say 15 to 20% of the tokens. That's what they get for creating a protocol uh, and make people. But in order to prevent them from having too much control of the protocol early on, those tokens will have restrictions on transfer. And a lot of those restrictions will be similar to what you'd see in a stock vesting concept. Maybe they'll have, you know, 
those tokens will best over four years. And the vesting uh, will allow one forty-eighth of the amount of tokens to be released every month over four years, or maybe they'll have a one-year cliff and then the remainder over 36 months. The point is, I might hold tokens, but I might not be able to transfer them. I'm, I am locked by smart contract. The smart contract is software that's built into tokens that prevents or forces certain behaviors. Uh, and many tokens have restrictions on transfer. That so if you, in the bankruptcy context, if one receives those tokens, you literally cannot, well, first off, you can't receive them because they can't be transferred. So they're stuck there. Uh, how, do, how do you assign them value if they can't be transferred is one question. Uh, second question is, okay, they can't be transferred now. How do you know what the transfer restrictions are so that once they are eligible for transfer, you can receive them? Now, if the... The bankruptcy participant is a willing participant and they can tell you that information, then great. Maybe that works well for you. But if they're not willing or they're dead uh, or you can't find them, uh, you're going to have to, again, understand with each new protocol, or go back and research what the restrictions on transfer are for those individual contracts. And a, another, this is a little bit broad, I think, for this context, but smart contracts can be built into just about any cryptocurrency so that they do certain things or don't do certain things. So if my tokens are restricted from transfer, that doesn't mean they don't have value. So for example, my tokens still might have voting rights. I might not be able to transfer them for four years, but during that four-year period, I can still vote on the pro protocol that created those tokens to influence the decisions that are made. I also might still be able to stake those tokens. So I might be able to stake those tokens and borrow against their value so that I can have some other instrument that has value to me while the tokens themselves are stuck in a smart contract and can't be traded. So there's no simple answer here. And that again, highlights the fact that there's a lot of unknowns and there's a different set of smart contracts and rules for every token that's been created. And a bankruptcy trustee or a practitioner is going to have to understand that and determine when it makes sense to try and dig in and see if it's worth figuring out those rules so you can maximize the value of the bankruptcy estate or whether you just wave a white flag and get somebody else to do it for you or whether you just cash them in for whatever dollar value they're worth right now and go on about your business. John, that that's raises an interesting thought in my mind. So you've, you've, got, you've got these tokens, you can, they can't be transferred for a period of six months, a year, or maybe four years. Uh, can you enter into a contract uh, separate from the smart contract that that allows uh, the trustee or a creditor to uh, have the future rights to those tokens uh, when they mature or, or are randomized vested? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't seen that done. Haven't either. Um, I think uh, I think you can. I think the answer is you can. The question is whether it's enforceable. Uh, many of the tokens that are subject to restrictions like that were purchased as part of a SAFT. A SAFT is it's called a Simple Agreement for Future Tokens. That SAFT itself uh, contains certain terms and conditions, and it might have a provision that controls what you've just, you know, the scenario you just laid out. Is it possible for me to transfer my interest in a SAFT to another individual? And oftentimes that no transfer provision will require the permission of the grantor of the SAFT. So if the grantor of the SAFT acknowledges and says it's okay, then you can probably do it, my guess. 
if they don't give their permission, either because they think those tokens are not going to meet some condition that they get it back, or for whatever reason, uh, then they might not give you permission. And it'd be an interesting question about whether you could force them to give you permission in a bike yeah. context. I have a follow-up to that, because that's where my head was going on sort of the aggregating of assets at the moment a bankruptcy is filed, right? So everyone knows that you file a bankruptcy and wherever the debtor's assets are, wherever located on the on the on the globe, so to speak, they become property of the bankruptcy estate, right? It's a little different, I think, in with crypto assets. And so my mind goes to the question of whether or not you would almost need to update the blockchain to notice the other participants of this interceding or intervening bankruptcy event in a similar way to how you would um, provide notice to creditors or you provide notice to litigants in a state court bankruptcy that a bankruptcy, a state court matter that a bankruptcy has intervened. Do you foresee the need to be updating the blockchain in the concept of the asset being transferred into an estate? I don't really see how that would work or how it would be beneficial. Um, I, well, I suppose you could uh, you could give notice to a DAO. So to the extent a DAO controls tokens, an individual's tokens, it might be interesting to DAO participants, uh, but I don't think you can require them. I can't foresee a scenario where you could require them to take certain action or whether it would be particularly beneficial to them to know somebody who happens to hold their, their tokens is in bankruptcy because most tokens can be traded either on centralized or decentralized exchanges. And unless you're talking about a really, really large number, a large percentage of tokens on a particular blockchain, it's unlikely they would have enough value to sway the value of all the other tokens. Um, so I don't think that DAO would care. And I don't think that other individual token holders would care. Well, then John, taking that to the next step though, Assume that the blockchain technology um, starts to expand into other industries, right, beyond currency, and we start to see it, as we know, in, in logistics and for purposes of property identification, so many different commercial uses, right? And so now, let's say the affairs of, of a debtor, or maybe some of its institutional knowledge, or its shipping logistics information exists on a blockchain and a, and a bankruptcy intercede or intervene, um, does the next block on the blockchain need to have bankruptcy specific information added to it? Do you think? Uh, I do not, uh, because the whole point of cryptocurrencies, as we said at the outset, is they want to be independent and autonomous and rely only on the trust of the other users. So. What happens to those users, what they do with their individual tokens or how they're affected has no effect on any other holder. Uh, now, if, if you were talking about an NFT, a non-fungible token, or a, uh, you know, where there's a series or a thousand NFTs in a series, uh, and maybe some of them come up, come available uh, out in a bankruptcy estate, uh, the fact that those tokens are not often traded uh, and they become available in bankruptcy, that could be useful. And that again, that's a bankruptcy trustee or a practitioner really knowing what he holds, knowing the value of those tokens. If that's the case, then it would be very smart to go to the community that controls or that is active with respect to that NFT series and say, Hey, I got 10 tokens. Let's put them for sale. Who's interested? 
and you know, you can, or at least advertise if you're going to you're going to sell them out in the open market. Advertise that community so you can have you know all the people who are likely to be interested would have a chance to participate. These first three episodes in our crypto series have been really informative to me as a novice in the crypto industry. In each of these episodes, we have spoken about issues created by the unique nature of crypto assets. We have touched on a lot of bankruptcy issues. In our upcoming and final episode in this series, we will pull all of that together to really dig into the bankruptcy implications of crypto assets.